If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1856, the body of railway cashier George Little was discovered in Dublin's Broadstone railway terminus. Little lay on the floor of his office with his neck slashed, but strangely enough, the room his body was found in appeared to be locked from the inside. This peculiar murder case sparked a media sensation, and it's now been reconstructed by Thomas Morris in his new book, The Dublin Railway Murder. I spoke to Thomas to find out more. Thank you so much for joining me. Can you introduce us to this historical cold case that you're looking at from 1856? Well, I first came across it as a court case, in fact, and then sort of worked backwards from that. This is a case that took place in Ireland in the 1850s. And I think I should say, by way of introduction, this is a time when the British and the Irish public were really fascinated by a series of high-profile murder cases. There were several culminating perhaps in the case of um, a man known as the Rugely Poisoner uh, in 1856, which was um, an amazing case. He was a a doctor who was convicted of uh, probably fewer murders than he had in in fact committed. But this absolutely seized the public imagination. It dominated the newspapers for days, particularly around the time of the trial. Well, several months later in Dublin, a clerk at the railway station at Broadstone, which is one of the main terminuses in Dublin, and his name was George Little, was found dead in his office. And there were various features of this case which were extremely mysterious. He was found dead in his office, surrounded by piles of gold and silver coins, uh, amounting to well over a thousand pounds, which is a huge sum in 1856. And the door was locked, apparently, from the inside. So that was the sort of starting point. Um, It turned out there was a huge amount of complication involved in the police investigation of the case, and it culminated in this spectacular trial about nine months later. So it it starts off as a sort of murder mystery and turns into a courtroom drama, really. As you said there, a, a murdered man in a room locked from the inside, it sounds like a real riddle, as it were. Do you think that's why it captured the public imagination in the way that it did? That's certainly one reason for it. There there are a few others. This is a a period of time, by the way, that George Orwell calls in in his great essay uh, on on the murder. Uh, He calls this the the beginning of the the great age of the English murder. Uh, He's referring to English cases, of course. This is in Dublin. Um, But it was certainly a time when the public had an appetite for these sensational, rather gory cases. Uh, The other factor I think is quite important is that Dublin at the period was an incredibly safe city. There's a claim in one of the contemporary newspaper reports that there had not been a single conviction for murder in three decades, which seems an extraordinary thing. And in fact, I looked into it in a little more depth, and it's not quite true. There was a murder case from 1842 uh, in which um, a British, she turned out to be a secret agent working in Dublin, had murdered a child and had been hanged for it. But it is also true that between then, 1842, and this case in 1856, there seems to have been not a single conviction for murder in the Dublin courts. 
Um, and there is a plausible reason for that, which is that Dublin was one of the best policed cities on the planet. It had more police per capita than, and well, certainly than London. It had more than twice as many police per head of population. It was very heavily policed, partly because the government, the British government at that point, was worried that there was an emergent Irish nationalism, which would pose a threat to the British administration. So there was a huge uniform police force there. Um, from 1842, there were also detectives. Um, but it did mean that a violent death of this kind was a major event and one that was always going to um, worry um, Dubliners as, as much as fascinate them. So I want to ask you about the Dublin police force in a minute. But before we do, what do we know about the victim, George Little, and his job at the railway station, Broadstone Railway Station, where his body was found? Yes, this is an age when the railway was just coming to Ireland. Uh, lines had been springing up for around, the 20 year, uh, around a 20-year period before this murder occurred. In 1845, a new company uh, had been set up, the uh, Midland Great Western Railway Company, uh, to provide services from the west coast of Ireland in Galway uh, to Dublin. Uh, they started with a shorter section of line up to the sort of Irish Midlands, and then over the next few years, it was extended right up to the west coast. And to end this line, uh, there was this grand terminus building built uh, in 1847. The ground was broken and it opened in 1850. And it's, I've been there, it still exists, although it's no longer a railway station. It's a rather magnificent sort of classical building. It looks like, I think I described it as a, a cross between a sort of Egyptian tomb and some sort of Greek temple. And um, it's a really magnificent edifice. Um, they spared no expense. And George Little went to work there in 1854 as a clerk. And by 1856, he was appointed the cashier to the entire company. So his job was essentially tossing up all the monies that came into the company all the way along the line from Galway all the way into Dublin. And his background is rather interesting. He was the son of a well-to-do solicitor. His family was actually sort of uh, country gentry, really. They were Protestants. So he was in a minority, in fact, at the station where he worked. His father was a prosperous solicitor who was able to buy a very nice early Victorian house in South Dublin. And then he died rather unexpectedly when George was a young man. And he had three siblings, uh, two sisters and a brother. And after his father's death, the plan was that uh, he and his brother would provide all the income for his siblings and, and widowed mother. In fact, the brother, because of the economic conditions in Ireland at the time, this is the end of the great famine. His brother emigrated to Canada, leaving George as the only breadwinner for the household. Um, and in fact, his his sister had lost her husband as well. So he was living in, in the end with his widowed sister, widowed mother and widowed aunt. So three widows and he was the only one drawing a wage. What were some of the suspected motives for his murder? Because initially there was an idea that it may have been a suicide. Is that right? Yes, the whole thing started off in sort of murky clouds of mystery, really. When his body was discovered, and the circumstances were that he was a very punctilious man. He, he always turned up for work at nine o'clock on the dot and, and left. Uh, he kept very regular hours. He was a very moral, sort of sternly moral man. He was a nonconformist, a member of the Prim Plymouth Brethren. And then this Friday morning, uh, November the 14th, 1856, he failed to turn up for work. And it was only at lunchtime that the door of the office was broken down and his body was discovered. And it was assumed at first that he had committed suicide. The reason for that being that there had been a spate of embezzling incidents in railway companies specifically in Britain. Three 
very significant corporate frauds had been perpetrated by employees who had access to uh, the sort of financial side of the business. And it was assumed that George Little had done the same, that somehow he'd been caught out, maybe by one of the auditors, and that rather than face justice, he had done away with himself. In fact, that wasn't the case, as was only revealed at the post-mortem, which took place two days after his death. And at that point, they realised, because of the nature of his injuries, that he'd certainly been murdered. Now, interestingly, it was not at first assumed that it was a robbery, because there was so much money left in his office, it was covering every surface, according to the eyewitness descriptions, um, that it seemed to have been some sort of assassination, maybe a revenge or some sort of feud. Um, and it took quite a long time because there was just simply so much money in this office to establish that actually £330 had gone missing. So it was a violent robbery. You told us earlier about the fact that there were a lot of policemen in Dublin at the time. But did that mean that they were necessarily very effective when they were conducting an investigation? If we were looking at the detectives involved here, what kind of um, what kind of tools did they have at their disposal to solve a murder like this? Well, the detective force is quite a recent innovation in Dublin. Um, I mentioned, I think, that they were founded as a department in 1842, just a few months after the London Metropolitan Police gained their first um, detective force. And in fact, the Dublin force was modelled very much on the London model. They had a similar sort of departmental structure. And the uh, detective who ended up leading the inquiry into the murder of George Little, had been one of the very first detectives appointed in Dublin. He was also one of the first officers uh, when the Metropolitan Police was set up a few years before that, a man called Augustus Guy. Now, the difference between London and Dublin in terms of detection was that um, in London, they had quite a sort of regular supply of serious crimes to deal with. And there was a lot of public hostility to the idea of detectives at first, because it was quite a a novel idea that you would have a policeman who wasn't in uniform. And the public were very suspicious of these people who were able to mingle at will with the general populace. Now, in London, they soon proved their worth because they they were extremely effective at clearing up major crimes, robberies and so on. In Dublin, that wasn't quite so much the case, not least because the government was using them as spies. They were being used as sort of secret agents to spy on the activities of nationalist groups in the 1840s. But also, the Dublin force had no experience at all of clearing up murders. There just simply hadn't been one on their patch. So it was generally seen that the London force was more effective and they had the expertise. They had some quite high-profile detectives, people like Charles Frederick Field, who became celebrities thanks to Charles Dickens writing about them in magazines and so on. But the techniques were very basic. There was forensic science is very much in in its infancy. So they were investigating it almost as if they were looking into the theft of a joint of beef from a, a butcher or something like that, really. What kind of leads did they have? Where did the investigation take them initially? Well, when Augustus Guy came in as the inspecting officer, which he did on about the third day of the investigation, because the, the man who was actually meant to be leading the detective force was off sick, he did a style of policing that probably is quite recognisable today, which is he just decided to interview absolutely everybody exhaustively. So anybody who had been anywhere near the station building, particularly the employees, the people who had um, sort of daily connection with the, with the premises, everybody was interviewed by the detective, sometimes several times. They searched the whole place from top to bottom. And the rather wonderful thing about this case is that there's a huge amount of primary source material that has survived among which is the transcripts of all these interviews. And it it runs to well over 100 pages of typescript, which I've seen and and transcribed. And he interviewed 
all the station employees who could possibly have been in the building on that day. And also people who just dropped in. There's a builder called a, a Mr. Tough, it's a rather wonderful name, whose premises were just opposite the station, who dropped in at the end of the business day to chew, cash a cheque for £100. And he was interviewed. And there was also one of the other attractive things about this whole story for me was that there's a, there's a slight sort of Agatha Christie cast quality to it in that there were people actually living in the station building. There was a housekeeper. There was the assistant storekeeper, her husband. The station master lived there with his wife. There was a, a maid servant who also lived in, in the basement. Um, so there was this sort of tight-knit community surrounding the station, all of whom spoke to the police during the investigation. So an investigation like this would be really dependent on eyewitness testimony then, from what you've described there. Yes, the most important source of evidence was what people had to say. One of the fascinating things that emerges from the interviews is that in the best tradition of detective fiction, many of the plausible suspects had secrets of their own, which were nothing to do with this murder. So there was a gambling addict. There was somebody who had borrowed money. In fact, he'd taken a pair of trousers to the pawnbroker to liberate enough funds to take him to the to the races. There were uh, people who were secret drinkers. And all these people lied to some extent in their interviews with the police to conceal these secrets that they didn't want to come out. And they gave grounds for suspicion and at one time or another were suspected of having committed the crime. So how did the detectives finally zero in on a prime suspect? It was a tortuous route to get there. They had, in the initial stages of the investigation, a huge amount of information coming in from members of the public. And some of this was uh, of very little value. Um, Much of it amounted to people having been in a pub and noticed that somebody had a lot of money on them, or people talking in a suspicious manner about some event that they didn't want publicised. And so these tip-offs kept coming in. And in fact, several of these suspects were arrested. There was very early on a group of people uh, that were named the Stony Batter Suspects. And they were a group of three people who had been overheard in a pub discussing, uh, well, they'd been seen with a large amount of money and heard discussing uh, matters that they were obviously keen to keep to themselves. And all of these suspects were arrested. There were five over the course of several months. There was one in Cork who turned out to be, uh, he was from Dublin originally, he was an auctioneer whose business had gone bust and he'd run away to Cork to escape his debtors. And uh, the police had to exclude these people. Generally, they had to arrest them and then put them in a police court before they discovered that there was no way they could have been the murderer. There were actually two or three quite plausible suspects among the station employees. Now, eventually, the police zeroed in on, on a couple of them, one of them who lied repeatedly to police and kept changing his story. And actually, it remained slightly mysterious to me even why he had been lying about his whereabouts on the night of the murder. It seems that he was suffering from anxiety and was possibly also an alcoholic. I don't know. But the suspect they eventually landed upon as the most likely was one of the uh, people who lived in the station. And they set surveillance on him for an amazing amount of time. Weeks and weeks after the inquiry had, to all intents and purposes, ceased, they still had plainclothes officers following him around Dublin at the dead of night to find out where he was going and what he was doing. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But it was not permissible for a woman to make an allegation of criminal activity against her husband in other circumstances. So the police had to then, uh, and quite quickly, find uh, enough circumstantial evidence uh, that would allow them to obtain a conviction. So the man that they zeroed in on, 
was a man called James Spollin. What do we know about him and why he would have been motivated to do this potentially? Well, James Spollin is actually a name that that came like a bolt out of the blue. Um, He had not figured to any significant extent in the initial phase of the inquiry. Um, The the police investigation began 48 hours after the the death of George Little. Uh, That's in mid-November. It was still carrying on in February the following year, so almost four months later. And then it seems to have petered out for a bit. There were still sort of sporadic surveillance reports coming in uh, in sort of late spring of 1857. And then from nowhere, um, a woman came forward in June 1857 and said that her husband was the murderer and that she could prove it. Um, He was the suspect in question, a man called James Spollin, and he worked on the station. He had quite an interesting background, actually. He had started his career working uh, in a a wrought iron foundry in South Dublin. And in his 20s, he'd actually come over to London with his employer uh, to help build the greenhouses, the great sort of uh, hothouses at Kew, which are then the, the largest in the world. And then he went back to Dublin and... There they were building the iron and glass roof over the Broadstone Station. So he worked on that project for a year. And then when the roof was completed, the railway company wanted somebody to maintain the roof. And so he stayed on in that capacity. He ended up working as a sort of general factotum and handyman in the station. He would paint bits of wood and do minor bits of carpentry around the place. And he lived on the station premises, in fact, in a cottage just kind of a bit further away on the estate, the other side of the railway lines, with his family, his wife and his four children. And he was sort of part of the furniture there. He was one of those people who could sort of come and go at will. Uh, And I think he was so so, so much a sort of familiar face that he almost blended into the background. You said earlier about the fact that there was a huge public response to this and that many, many tip-offs were given before they focused in on um, James Follin. I was just intrigued as to the role that the press played in all of this, in fueling the investigation, as it were. There's an interesting dynamic going on between the police and the press, particularly. I think um, Augustus Guy, the uh, superintendent uh, who was leading the the detective's investigation, he made a decision quite early on, which was at odds with the way that many detectives uh, would would have behaved at that point, which is that he decided to conduct his investigation uh, confidentially, was the word he used. And it was normally the case that detectives shared everything they knew with reporters. And it's very clear that the reporters absolutely swarmed all over the Broadstone station from the inquest onwards. And so the detectives would have been constantly assailed with questions and so on. And generally speaking, detectives just said everything they knew. If there was a a major discovery, there was usually a reporter on hand to describe exactly what it was that had been discovered. Now, Augustus Guy and his men actually shared very little information. There are some exceptions to that, interestingly. One of the newspapers in Ireland, the Freeman's Journal, seems to have had the inside story for absolutely every major development. So I suspect that their reporter um, had a a police, a a secret police source who was willing to to, to share everything he knew. When it comes to the trial, the press actually seems to have stood back quite a lot. Uh, sorry, I should explain. There, there is a trial. There is a suspect who goes on trial in this story. And there were fairly firm warnings to the press that they were not to interfere, to prejudice the course of the criminal trial. And they seem, by and large, to have obeyed that. So tell us a little bit more about that trial. What was the Dublin courthouse like at the time? What would it, the atmosphere of a trial there have been like? 
Well, this this trial was particularly sensational. The inquiry had been quiescent for so long that I think uh, a lot of people had despaired of ever catching the killer. They thought he probably wouldn't ever be co- uh, brought to justice. It took place in the Green Street courtroom, which actually uh, was still being used for trials until quite recently. It was only, I think, in the last 10 or 20 years that um, it was repurposed. It's rather a handsome building. Again, I- I've been there. It's a sort of tall, double-heighted it looks as though it was built in the late 18th century. I'm not sure it's quite quite as old as that, but it's rather elegant, sort of classical building. This was f- far and away uh, the most exciting thing to have happened uh, in a Dublin courtroom in years. Um, and they actually ticketed uh, the uh, admission. So um, there were reported to be hordes of people crowding the streets on both sides of the building uh, in, before each day of the trial. And they had policemen on the doors making sure that people had tickets to get in. And I think it was um, uh, inside those days, of course, they, they used to just pack them in as, as, as much as they could. So I think it was probably quite stifling inside. Something you mentioned earlier was the fact that James Spollin's wife had dobbed him in, as it were. She'd been the one that to suggest that she knew who the murderer was and it was her own husband. But she wasn't allowed to give evidence in court. How significant was that rule, that legal loophole, as it were? Well, I think it's a hugely significant fact and it probably influenced the outcome of the trial. There's actually an interesting little vignette here, which is that when the police were uh, received this information from her about her husband, she also gave, by the way, some very good uh, indication that she really was telling the truth and that she led the police to some of the stolen money. So she knew where it had been hidden. Uh, now, that would have been very powerful evidence if it were presented to a jury. And uh, Augustus Guy actually went to a police magistrate and said, we'd like to charge this man with murder. And the magistrate said, what evidence are you going to use to charge him with? And he said, oh, well, his wife has told us all about it. And the magistrate said, but that's quite impossible. Because in 1857, it was not permissible for a wife to give evidence in court against her husband. Uh, There's one exception, actually. If if the husband had been um, abusing her in any way, then that would have been permitted. But it was not permissible for a woman to make an allegation of criminal activity against her husband in other circumstances. So the police had to then, uh, and quite quickly, find uh, enough circumstantial evidence uh, that would allow them to obtain a conviction. The exact wording of the uh, of the statute is that a woman shall not be deemed competent to give evidence against her husband. Um, and that ruling was not um, revoked until 1897, uh, which seems extraordinary now, but it's, it's true. This case also ties into the strange and pretty fascinating world of Victorian criminal science, and um, most intriguingly, um, phrenology. What was phrenology and how did it connect to this case? Well, phrenology was a discipline that emerged in the late 18th century. Uh, a German um, doctor called Gall, G-A-L-L, uh, was the first person to describe the principles. And it was an early attempt at neuroscience, really, And the fundamental idea behind it was that the uh, brain can be divided into different regions, each dedicated to a separate function, Uh, some of them sort of intellectual and some to do with things like emotions uh, and feelings. And Gaul believed that uh, it was possible to work out which areas of the brain were responsible for which bits of uh, function. And he also believed that if 
one part of the brain was, uh, let's say, the part of the brain devoted to um, what he called amativeness, which is, you know, what we might call love. If that were particularly well developed, then it would also be larger in size. And if it were larger in size, then you'd be able to tell that from the shape of the skull above. And he developed this into an entire system, which allowed you to analyse a person's personality and their intellectual aptitudes according to the shapes of their skull. And you'll probably be familiar with those phrenologists' heads that quite often kind of pop up in antique shops with all the regions of the brain sort of described and numbered. Now, this case is rather interesting in that a phrenologist called Frederick Bridges, who published several books and was reasonably well known in that world, became very interested in it. And he had spent about 20 years developing a system of his own, uh, which was applying phrenology to criminology. And he believed that there was something special about a violent criminal's brain, that it would be possible to work out simply by examining a person's skull, whether they were, they were a person of violent tendencies or criminal tendencies, and differentiate them from the rest of the population. And the story of how he came to those conclusions is quite interesting. He spent a lot of time travelling the country, attending public executions, and then getting permission to examine their corpses afterwards. And there are several of these descriptions in both newspapers and in also his own writings. And he would go all over the place, Leeds and Scotland and, and everywhere, from his home in Liverpool. And then he would make a plaster cast of the criminal's skull and then go home to analyse it and describe the results. And he believed he'd come up with a, an infallible method of telling a violent criminal from a, a normal member of the population. And it involved an angle formed by a person's ear and their eyebrow. And he believed that if this angle was more than 25 degrees, then the person was a violent criminal. And that in normal people, that angle was closer to 15 degrees. Um, and so he saw this case and the fact that um, there was a prime suspect and that his guilt had not yet been established. Uh, he saw this as a way to test his theories. Incredible stuff. So how did this case come to a conclusion and what was the impact on those involved? There were a lot of loose ends at the end of this. Um, the trial ended with, well, let's just say a surprise verdict. And there were a lot of questions still unanswered about who might have committed the crime. I think it's in, well, in my view, it's quite clear who committed the crime. But from a, a sort of historian's point of view, um, it's rather pleasing because it allows you to trace the sort of afterlife of this story and what happened next to several of the major players. Um, and uh, we've just talked a bit about the phrenologist, but there's a rather, um, to me, Mike, the, the favourite episode in the entire story is the encounter between the prime suspect and the phrenologist who wanted to find out his guilt. And they ended up in this sort of six-week-long darts around each other, really, uh, which concluded with a phrenologist um, striking a deal with the suspect, um, James Spollin, that he would essentially pay for him to emigrate on condition that Spollin would allow him to cast his head in plaster so that he could analyse him for any possible criminal tendencies. So it was, uh, for some people, a rather unsatisfactory outcome. And the ramifications continued for a little while afterwards. Uh, there were some discussions about various ways in which the law might be changed so that uh, an outcome like this might be avoided in future. I'm quite interested in the fact that Although it was such a sensational trial, it has not lingered in the memory quite as long as some of these other ones, uh, in, particularly in, in English criminal history, from around the same period. So what source material did you have available to you to reconstruct this crime? Because you were able to, to bring a level of meticulous detail and you were able also to reconstruct dialogue, which I think is, you know, every historian's dream because it's so, so hard to find in the source material often. 
Yeah, one of the delights of reconstructing stories from this era, particularly sort of criminal stories, is that the Victorians were often very meticulous about recording things. I think partly because newspaper audiences were so hungry for the details. So the trial, for instance, was transcribed in two or three different places, meaning they're actually alternative versions to cross-check to make sure all the details are correct. And those trial transcripts include remarkable uh, details like the judge talking to the ushers and so on. Uh, The newspapers also give a huge amount of very colourful details. So you don't get just what was going on in court, but also the hubbub in the courtroom before the jury returned to give their verdict. And uh, the reporters competed to get to places like the crime scene before it had all been sort of messed up by uh, other bystanders. Um, There were reporters there when the murder weapons were found. There were reporters on the scene within an hour when some of the money was found. So you have these very fresh eyewitness accounts of what was going on. But in addition to that stuff, which is quite easily available in the newspapers, um, I visited Dublin to walk walk in the footsteps of the characters and... Uh, the National Archives uh, in Ireland contained, to my amazement, a file dedicated to this case and containing a lot of documents from the original investigation. And that includes all the interviews that the detectives um, performed, but also these private letters, uh, reports on uh, surveillance that had been carried out on the main suspects. Um, There's a rather wonderful document which I enjoyed reading very much, which is um, the Crown Solicitor, who is, if you think of him is a, rather like um, a district attorney in the States. This is a, a government lawyer, but who's also supervising the police investigation. And after three or four weeks working on the investigation, he was moved to other duties. And he wrote this handover document uh, for his masters in government. And this handover document lays out in the sort of terms that um, Poirot or somebody might in an Agatha Christie novel, all the suspects he's considered, which ones he considers uh, to be plausible suspects and which he has excluded. And to have a document like that is, I, I, I think, pretty much unique. Well, that, that leads me on to, to my final question, really, which is why it's so interesting to reconstruct a criminal investigation from the past like this. I think there are several reasons. One is the the nature of the crime and the investigation uh, just makes for a good story a lot of the time. And I first became hooked by it when I read, um, I just stumbled across an account of one of the days, it was the second or third day of the trial, when they were discussing the entry and exit routes to the office. And for me, that was reminiscent of something out of a golden age crime novel of the 30s. And so it was that that hooked me about it. I, I think sometimes they're just very good stories. Added to that also is that it's fascinating to see an investigation like this from the inside. And uh, I mentioned the source material that that there is a lot of incredibly privileged information which has been preserved in various archives, including letters between the detectives and government officials and uh, documents written by um, a lawyer who was involved in the investigation, summarising his suspicions and what he thinks, trying to reconstruct the murder from his perspective. And that sort of insight into how people uh, thought and worked, I think, is quite rare and really fascinating to get from a 21st century perspective. And the other thing I'd say about it, I think, is that it leads us into hearing the voices that have typically been erased from history. There are huge um, numbers of uh, interviews with domestic servants, railway workers. Uh, One of the main witnesses was illiterate. So although she signs two or three statements which have survived, her signature is literally a cross. 
Now, these are people who are not recorded in history very often. There's, you know, oral history is not something that's really survived from the 1850s. So to get a, some insight into the everyday lives of these people, I think is really fascinating. That was Thomas Morris. His book, The Dublin Railway Murder, The Sensational True Story of a Victorian Murder Mystery, is available now, published by Harville Secker. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.